Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy at 8.55am. This is Susan Wolfe from the University of North Carolina. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolfe and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Reserve your right to think, for even to think wrongly is better than not to think at all. Hypatia. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Faith L. Justice about Hypatia. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth, and welcome. I'm so glad to be able to uh, talk to your audience. So um, would you be able to give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. Right now I'm a, a novelist, a kind of amateur uh, historian, but I've uh, knocked about in life. I was a lifeguard for a while, a systems analyst, but my background is in education, and uh, that seems to be the, the part that I keep going back to. I was a trainer in the corporate area, and uh, worked my way up to where I was, like, teaching CEOs and the, and the other executives. When my daughter started having problems in school, I left, and so went from teaching CEOs to teaching a five-year-old. And uh, then basically did make my way back to academia and was uh, teaching college-level kids. What was it that inspired you to study Hypatia? Well, way back, I'm dating myself here, way back in uh, 1980, I went to see a feminist art exhibit by Judy Chicago, and it was called The Dinner Party. And this was a huge, huge event, and it had, I'll, I'll try to describe it if, if people haven't seen it, it was a huge rectangle. It had like 39 place settings, and each place setting was devoted to a goddess or a woman from history. And... I you know, really enjoyed it. It was great, and I got the catalog, and I was, I was going through the catalog. I knew almost every woman that was in it because I kind of prided myself on my women's history, but one there that I had never heard of before, and that was uh, Hypatia. I read the entry in the catalog, and I uh, talked about her being a mathematician and astronomer in the 5th century A.D. Anyway, there was one person in this exhibit that I had never heard of before, and that was Hypatia. So when I was reading through the catalog, I read the entry, and it said she was a 5th century mathematician and astronomer, and I thought this was amazing, because I hadn't heard of women being mathematicians and astronomers way back when. It went on to say that she emphasized the feminine in her teachings, and that she was killed by a Christian mob for being a woman scientist. And I thought, oh my gosh, how had I never heard of this? So... I set about over the course of several years, because I was working in the corporate area at this time, so I wasn't a full-time writer, but I just set about gathering information on her, and it was amazingly diverse. I mean, there was just tons of stories, lots of poetry, plays, 
And what I found was that there was no coherent story there. Different people thought she was a uh, virgin, a middle-aged woman, an old woman when she died, that she was a Christian, that she was a pagan, that she was a feminist, free thinker, free lover. It just went on and on. There was, there was just no way to get at who this woman really was. Until a classics scholar, um, Maria Zelska, came out with a book, and I, I got it. it. It was translated through Harvard Press. And she put all this together, and she went back, and she looked at all the primary sources, and she came up with a coherent story about Hypatia based on the primary sources and what was going on in the world at the time. So I was just, yes, now I have you know, a, a good story, and I set about writing it in a novel. Could you tell us who Hypatia was and what type of family she was born into? Yeah, she was from a, an upper-class Greek family in Alexandria, Egypt, like the 5th century. She, so she was an elite. And she was well-educated. Her father, Theon, was the leading mathematician of the time. He was probably the best mathematician not only in the Roman Empire but in the world at the time. So she grew up in that kind of a family, and her father didn't uh, deny her any part of education. He taught her and raised her, and, uh, and she was his partner for many years until his death. But they, they were elites in, in the Alexandria uh, community. Yeah, so even though Hypatia has been described as a mathematician and, and an astronomer, her first love was really philosophy. Yes, there's a lot of confusion because in modern times, philosophy is thought of as you know, rational thought and it, it, it's something separate from religion. But back in those times, uh, philosophy was a kind of religion. And in fact, one of Hypatia's students in writing to his fellow students and to Hypatia you know, referred to the things that she taught them as mysteries. And Hypatia's philosophy was rooted in Neoplatonism, which basically said uh, there, there was one God, wasn't the Christian God. You know, they, they just, it was a monotheistic thing. There is one God, and humans can get to know this God through uh, deeply meditating, living a good life, being virtuous, and that's so that's what she was leading a, a very small number of elite young men who studied with her. She was kind of leading them in these studies. And they used mathematics to discipline their brains. So mathematics and, and astronomy were basically uh, tools to help them get to this place where they could experience, I guess in the Buddhist sense, nirvana. But... But that was, yeah, that was her first love. It was philosophy. And mathematics and astronomy were more tools to, in, in that search for being with God. What did Hypatia contribute to maths and science? Yeah, that's fascinating, because this was a very turbulent, anti-intellectual time. Most people of, of this time were not educated in much any way whatsoever, just a tiny handful of people. In the Roman Empire, the Goths had invaded and had taken Rome just a few years, like it was uh, 410, I, I believe. 
And so there was like people were were invading Rome. There was fear all over the place. I mean, Rome, Rome falling was considered a major, major shock to the political system. And the Christians at this time were basically feeling their oats. They had come out of a couple hundred years of persecutions to be the, the, the religion of the empire. And so they were on more political power. But, but what happened then was there were just a very tiny handful of people who were learning this math that had been around for centuries. Some of the, the geometry and the astronomy had been studied by masters, and, but there weren't a whole lot of people available to actually learn this stuff. Theon and Hypatia were actually math teachers. That's what they did. They took the work of the ancients, Euclid and Aristotle's and, and uh, you know, several others, work on geometry and uh, number theory and conics, and wrote math texts and astronomy texts. And they, they were able to make this, you know, the higher math, uh, more accessible to their students. So although neither one seemed to have contributed anything really new other than a little minor thing that uh, Hypatia had, had come up with a new way of doing long division. But there was nothing much new. But because they did this, this math came down to us. And it would have been very easy for that math to have been lost during the, these turbulent times. And we would have had to start all over again. So, so they really were responsible for making sure that you know, these mathematical, higher mathematical concepts came down to the modern age. Did any of Hypatia's letters or books survive? No. So the quote that you gave at the top of the, uh, the program, she didn't say that. It's, it's, that. That's a really nice thing. There are quotes from her all over the Internet, and most of them came from a book that was written like in the late 1800s by a guy, and I'm blanking on his name, but he wrote a whole series on great teachers of ancient times, and he wrote a Hypatia story and completely made up everything. Uh, so the only thing that we have from Hypatia, it, she did write several books, so that has been attested to, but scholars cannot find the evidence to say, like this, this math text on conics that came down was written by her. Her name isn't on it. They don't know for sure. The only thing we do have is a little note on a um, on one of uh, uh, Theon's books that said, "My daughter Hypatia helped me," and that's all we have. Now we do have letters from one of her one of her students I mentioned earlier, Synesius, and he wrote because he was a bishop in the Christian Church. His writings got preserved, and he wrote over 300 letters, and I think 15 or so of them were written to Hypatia, but we do not have any letters from her. So we do have the letters to her, and you know, which I think are about as close as we're going to get. Oh, gee, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's 
Yeah, I feel like I've been quite deceived re- reading out the quote, but anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave it because it was it, it made an interesting discussion, really. Would Hypatia been described as a scandalous woman in her time? Well, it would depend on who you ask. Uh, among the elites where she circulated, uh, the top men, and they were men, I mean, of her city, she was quite esteemed. She, she basically counseled the counselors, gave you know, information and, and helped out the governors. She taught, like, did, did public lectures in the lecture halls. And so, so they had a lot of respect for her, and she was welcomed in, in the, the political realm. She was actually very well esteemed by the church as well. Bishop Theophilus got along very well with her. Like I said, she was she was a monotheist. She didn't believe that Jesus Christ died to save her soul, but but she was a monotheist, and so she got along very well with all the elites. And most of the people of Alexandria probably thought well of her uh, as well. But towards the end of her life, new bishop came on the scene, uh, Bishop Cyril, who was Theophilus's nephew, and it was. It was really, he wanted to consolidate power, and I, I know we'll probably talk more about this later, but he started a whispering campaign against her, and he accused her of witchcraft and of, of uh, the dark arts, practicing the dark arts, and keeping the governor, Orestes, from church. And among the more uneducated members of his congregation, extremely scandalous. I mean, you know, they didn't want a witch advising their their counselors and their governor this was this was difficult so yeah so among the elites no she was esteemed and, and beloved and respected but at the end of her life the you know the mob so to speak was turning against her you're listening to radical philosophy on radio 3cr 855 on your am dial and i'm speaking with faith l justice about hypatia could you tell us about the Great Library of Alexandra? Oh, yeah, another one of my favorite institutions. Like I said, I'm, I'm an academic at heart, and I'll, I'll try not to bore people with too much history here. But when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, he laid out the city of Alexandria and then died before he got to live there. His general, Ptolemy, who took over Egypt, did finish up Alexandria, and one of his advisors, another Greek, said, you know, if if you really want to be a great king, you're going to have to learn as much about kingship as you can. Try to get books from all of your fellow rulers and learn about this, because this advisor wanted him to become one of, like, Plato's philosopher kings. So Ptolemy did start collecting books. He sent notes to to all his fellow rulers saying, you know, send me stuff. He also, whenever a a ship would come to Alexandria, if it had books in it, and these books were scrolls at the time, so they didn't look like the extras that we have now, he would confiscate them, have them copied, keep the originals, and send the copies on to wherever they were going to go. So as these uh, scrolls accumulated, his son then set up what was called the museum. This was a temple to the muses, and that's where we get the word museum. 
And as part of this museum, they collected scholars from all over the empire who came to study literature and math and medicine. These scholars uh, had a communal living space. The, the codec, the uh, scrolls were in niches. So there wasn't anything that was known as the library at that time. It became known as the Royal Library, but it was integrated as part of this great museum. And the museum also had a zoo and a botanical garden. It was, it was a place of learning. And there was always a priest who was the head of this museum because it was a temple to the muses. So it became known throughout the, the world at that time. This was like in the 300s B.C., and it grew and it grew and it grew. But when, what was, I think, I think it was Caesar who was the first person who was accused of burning the great library. Because the story of the burning of the great library is, again, one of those kind of epic myths that says, oh, my God, the great library went up in flames and the Dark Ages immediately descended on the world. Well, it didn't quite happen that way. But Caesar was, when he was coming to conquer Egypt, he was, he set fire to ships in the harbor, and that those fires then went to some warehouses, which had like 40,000 scrolls in them. And so he was accused of burning the Great Library. But we don't think that's quite true, because these scrolls, you know, the Great Library would have been in the museum, in the palace district. And so we think that's kind of, like, not true. Then a couple hundred years, maybe 300 years later, there was a whole series of wars in the middle of the 3rd century. Zenobia, a, a woman ruler, rebelled against Rome and attacked and won Alexandria. And there was a lot of damage when she came in. Then about 30 or 40 years later, Diocletian, a Roman emperor, came to Alexandria because the people of Alexandria were disobeying him on something or other. He attacked Alexandria and completely burned down the palace district, which included the museum. So likely the, the scrolls and, and material from the library were significantly damaged during that, whatever was left after several years of decline. Then the next person who's accused of burning down the great library was Bishop Theophilus in, uh, in the late 4th century. And he was, he, he basically burned down another pagan temple, which was called the Serapeum, which had at one point in time had a daughter library. It was a public library available to all people of Alexandria. But we have an eyewitness account of what the Serapeum was like shortly before its destruction, and nobody mentioned a library there. So it is unlikely that that was the burning of the Great Library. There may have been some books, but maybe not. Then finally, when the Arabs came into town in, in the 7th century, there, there's an apocryphal story that basically says that they used what was left of the Great Library, if there was much at all, to heat the public baths. So, you know, we have multiple stories of, of this, but knowledge will out, and these, these things did go into individual collections, and over time... What was probably happening as well was that a lot of those ancient texts were discarded by librarians who curated these things. They got eaten by bugs. They got filled with copy errors. 
So the idea that there was one big conflagration and the world stumbled into darkness ever after and had to go through like a thousand years before recovering is a little much. It it, it probably did not happen that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Could you describe the events leading up to Hypatia's death? Yeah, as I said, this was a very turbulent time. The last three years of her life, there was there was a new a governor that was appointed to Alexandria. In, in the east, the emperor was a young boy who was basically his 15-year-old sister, Pulcheria, was acting as for him. So things were kind of like weak in terms of the political action in the east. So when uh, the new governor arrived, his name was Orestes, very shortly after he took office, Bishop Theophilus died, and his, his nephew, Cyril, was put up to be bishop against, and, and his nephew, Cyril, was actually quite young and very inexperienced, but Theophilus had been grooming him for, for the role, but he died too soon, and Cyril wasn't quite ready. But, but there were rioting in the streets because there were other contenders for the brick. And Cyril had access to this radical bunch of monks that were outside of the city. They were desert monks. And they came into the city and rioted for three days. There were many deaths until people decided, hey, okay, we'll elect Cyril. So Cyril became bishop. And he began a campaign of consolidating the Christian churches. At this time, in the early Christian church, there were many, many people believing lots and lots of things about the nature of Christ. Some believed that Christ was fully human, others that he was fully design, divine, others that he was a mixture. Was Mary a, a virgin not? Just on and on and on. And over the years, they had consolidated some of these, these theories. But depending on who was in power, and in this case, it was usually the emperor, the emperor would well, I think that, that Jesus was wholly divine, so that group would be in charge for a while, and, and they would persecute the other Christians who didn't believe that way. And then you know, a new emperor would come in and say, well, I believe that Jesus was wholly human, and that faction would rise. So anyway, this was, this was going on, and the, the Christians were, were fighting amongst themselves for a couple centuries over this stuff. And uh, so about this time... Cyril decided, okay, I'm going to get rid of all heresies in the city of Alexandria. And that meant I'm getting rid of anybody who doesn't believe the way I do. And so he attacked the other Christian churches. He was quite successful in this, in purging what he thought as heretics. And once he had, uh, and, and these people then also appealed to the governor saying, help, this, this, our bishop is persecuting us. The bishop also was antagonizing the Jews and antagonizing the pagans. And so Orestes tried to rein Cyril in. And that's when Cyril took a look and said, okay, who are the people supporting Orestes and how do I get around him? And he saw that Hypatia was a major supporter of of, uh, Orestes because Hypatia came down on the side of you know, Greek values, you know, kind of rationality, inclusion. So, so she was there, you know, guiding 
arrestees. And the Jews were supporting him. And so Cyril started a, a campaign against all of those people. And he did, in fact, manage to get a number of Jews expelled from the city, again, after riots and all kinds of nefarious actions. And he started a whispering campaign against Hypatia among his congregation. Now, this resulted in her death. You know, eventually what happened was a... I think it was a presbyter, a presbyter named Peter, led a mob that basically yanked Hypatia out of her chariot when she was on her way to or from lecturing. They dragged her to a, a, a church called Caesarean and murdered her, brutally murdered her, hacked her body apart, and then took those parts outside the city walls and burned them. So it was, like I said, it was a very turbulent time. And that's one of the, the whole, the whole uh, story around her death was one of those things that later writers romanticized and you know, why she was killed. Was she killed because she was a woman? Was she killed because she was um, a scientist? Was she killed because she was a pagan? And probably a little bit of that all adds in, but she was killed because she was engaged in politics and got caught in the crossfire. Yeah, jeez. Uh, what was Hypatia's legacy? I think I, I said a little bit about the, the reason we have a lot of the math that we do from the ancients was because of the work that she and her father did. And I think that is like a, I think that is an overlooked legacy, that people don't give her enough credit for, for that, or even know that, that that was happening. I think that most people are aware of that very rich literary history that Hypatia kind of like rediscovered. Basically, the, the Christian church was ashamed of what they did, and, and they basically engaged in a cover-up. And the primary sources that we have, the, the Christian sources, uh, all kind of blame Cyril. She didn't go, Cyril didn't go out and murder her, but he laid the floor for it. Like the you know inflammation, uh, inflammatory words matter and does lead to violence. So so after the cover up, there were just like some some little scraps of her story here and there on the primary sources. But in the 17th and 18th centuries, a lot of people were you know looking back to the Greek and the Roman writings, and they rediscovered her story and appropriated it again for their own purposes. So the Protestants during the, the Enlightenment period, you know, found her story and were castigating the, the Catholic Church with it. Like, look what you did. You know, you, you murdered this brilliant uh, woman. Uh, you know, you persecuted Galileo. All of these things are at your doorstep. And then, and, and they started writing polemics and... They had they had plays, they had poetry, they had history, and they had uh, like I said, it, it was a rich literary tradition. And I think what happened then during the 20th century, the feminists found her story, and that's how she wound up in uh, Judy Chicago's dinner party. But it's it, it's been her story's been reclaimed, but it's been reclaimed by everybody, and so they all see her as a martyr in their cause. And, you know, that's fine. 
I, you know, the more people who know about Hypatia and understand her life and times, the better. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, you're very welcome, and it was a delight. And I've been speaking with Faith L. Justice about Hypatia. Hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company, and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.